Matthew chapter 7, what are we going to do this morning? And uh, it's, uh, a wiser man would not have tried this, but we're, we're going to give it a shot. We're going to read chapter 7, verses 1 to 12, and we're going to drop back to chapter 6. And I, I felt like we just kind of flew through the Lord's Prayer. I want to give it a framework so you're a little bit familiar with it, can understand it a little better, and then we'll cover these 12 verses. So uh, follow along as I read Matthew chapter 7, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me get that speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. But which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now let your eyes find chapter 6, verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the pagans do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. One author wrote it this way, Was there ever a time when prayer for the church collectively and its members individually was more urgently needed than now. We need frequently to remind ourselves that the most striking deliverances wrought in the past for God's people are recorded chiefly as monuments of prevailing prayer. Take Moses, the night before he was to deliver the nation of Israel through the Red Sea in Exodus 14 as he waited before the Lord. Or in Exodus 17, when Joshua is on the battlefield in the valley and Moses is on the side of the hill with two men holding his hands up in prayer. Or in 1 Samuel chapter 7, as Samuel raises up a stone of reminder of testimony, he called it the Ebenezer Stone in the defeat of the Philistines. I always smile when we're singing that great hymn, and here I raise my Ebenezer, hitherto my help I find, and it's like people are going, what's an Ebenezer? Nobody asks, they just do it. It just means a, a stone of testimony. Or Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 20. That, that's a whole story worth reading. But three major powers had come against that, just his small kingdom, and in desperation he cried out to the Lord, and he called on the nation of Israel to fast and to pray together. 
And as the people prayed, they began to worship the Lord. And when they got up in the morning and they stood on the wall of the city, anticipating that the enemy was about to snuff them out, they discovered that the Lord had gone and literally put to death all of their enemies there in the valley. He goes on to say, could it be that the impotence of the church today is directly related to her forgetfulness of her God and the loss of dependence upon him as declared by our forgottenness to pray. John R. W. Stott said this, he said, the essential difference between a Pharisaic pagan and Christian praying lies in the kind of God to whom we pray. So in the Lord's Prayer, the, the structure of the Lord's Prayer, and again, this will, it will not be exhaustive. Several years ago, we spent several weeks and we unpacked it a line at a time. But it begins with an invocation. It is a, a recognition of who it is to whom we are praying. Our Father in heaven. It addresses who He is, where He is, and what He is. He is in heaven. He has a perspective, a view of our lives that is not ours. We, we trust Him because He can see what we cannot see, the past, the present, and the future. He is also the Almighty God, Creator, Sustainer of the universe who communicates to us as a father. He has invited us to come as children, both adopted into the family and born again into the family, so as children are comfortable going to their father. So we are invited to do that. Our Father in heaven. And then there are six petitions, and the first three have to do with God himself, and the next three have to do with man and his need. The first three have to do with his name, his kingdom, and his will. First of all, his name. It is a call to worship. As I said a couple of weeks ago, the, the problem with contemporary worship is that, that we have so lost the transcendence and the glory and the greatness and, and the, the, of God that, that we have brought him down to what he's kind of like our buddy. He's just right here. We sing little repeated ditties about him that have really no meat or in them at all because we, we, we want him to be approachable. We want him to be near. We, we, just, we just want him to be our friend, forgetting who or what he is. We do have an intimate relationship with him as children, but he is to be worshipped. The word is, hallowed be your name. The name stands for all that he is, everything that he is. Hallowed means to honor it or set it apart. The best illustration I could come up with is in Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, the great conqueror of his world, had, had stood on top of the walls overlooking Babylon, one of the seven great wonders of the world. And he says, wow, look at this great kingdom that you yourself have built. Look at this great city that you yourself have accomplished. Sounds a lot like politics over the last four years. And the Lord warned him and he says, humble yourself or I'll humble you. And at the end of seven years of eating grass like a cow, thanks, Doc, for reminding us of that miracle. I blessed the Lord Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will among the hosts, that is, the armies of heaven, and among the inhabitants on the earth, and none can stay His hand. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise, extol, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways 
are just. After seven years of being publicly humiliated and humbled, he recognizes that God does that which is right and just. King David was so concerned about hallowing the name of Jesus or of, of God that, that in his worship in 1 Chronicles 23 and chapter 25, he puts all these all these servants in place. He has 4,000 gatekeepers, or we would call them members of the fit team, the ushers, the greeters, the security team. And also 4,000, described this way, shall offer praises to the Lord with the instruments I have made for praise. He had an orchestra of 4,000 that played when the people of God would gather into the presence of God. He provided all of those instruments for them. And then in chapter 25, it said that he also appointed 288 trained in singing to the Lord, all who were skillful. It, it, was, it, it was that his God... It, deserved the very best to bring the excellence to him. And so he didn't want just anybody on the choir. He wanted trained people, skilled people, bringing God the best. It occurred to me as I was writing this a couple of weeks ago, that when you leave our worship gatherings and you find yourself saying to yourself, you know, I really didn't get that much out of it this morning, that perhaps that's a time for you to ask the question, who did you come to worship? Revelation 4 said that God has appointed four creatures whose task 24-7, 365, is simply this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's the prelude worship music you hear as you come into the worship of eternity. Those four continue appointed. That's their whole existence is declare the holiness of God. When we pray before Him, we recognize that He is our Father in heaven and that He is above all things. He is to be hallowed and reverenced. We also pray in expectation, Your kingdom come. 32 times in the Gospel of Matthew, He speaks of the kingdom of heaven. It is that, it is that reign of God where He is sovereign over all. It's that, that longing, that anticipation in our screwed up, messed up world. Don't you long for a day when there will be peace and righteousness that permeate, where those in leadership can be fully trusted, confidence can be placed there. There is coming that day, until that day, the kingdom of God, the reign of God is recognized in our own lives. When we surrender the throne of our lives to Him and allow Him to be sovereign, master, Lord of our lives, in our own personal way, we are seeing His kingdom come. Isaiah 2, 2 says, It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow into it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways that we may walk in His paths. Isaiah 35, a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk in the way. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sign will flee away. Turn back to the left in your Bible. Find the book of Isaiah. Find the 65th chapter. 
Over and over, Isaiah proclaims the coming kingdom of God. Isaiah chapter 65, I'm going to start reading in verse 17, catch up when you find it there. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. I'm at verse 20 now. No more shall there be in it any infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years shall be cursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear their children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom, that kingdom come. And then the third is, your will be done. The will of God, the discernment of God. This last week I had several just spontaneous conversations with people saying, I'm trying to discern what the will of God is. When you pray for it, He is willing to reveal it to you. But we do know specifically that God's will is that everyone who hears the good news of salvation available by faith alone in Christ Jesus alone believes in Him, embraces Him, and trusts in Him. We also know that it is God's will that we be lights in the darkness, salt of the earth, that we be instruments of bringing the good news to people who are dying to hear a word of hope. Specifically for your life, God has a plan or a purpose, obedience to that will. But the problem is when you ask God what His will for your life is, it assumes that you're willing to do it if He reveals it to you. But I think there is a specific will that God has for most everyone's life, I think in terms of Hebrews chapter 12, we'll be studying Hebrews together starting early this fall. But in chapter 12, he says, run with endurance the race that is set before you, keeping your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. I look at your life and your trials and your tribulations, and I'm thinking, thank God I'm not running your race. But you look at mine, and God could never run your race. God has a specific purpose and plan for every individual life. As we pray, we ask Him to reveal to us, what is your will for me? And then there's a change that takes place. The next thing is we move from your to us and our. But I want you to notice that the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer, is not personal. It's not about me and my, but it's we, it's us, it's our. We are to pray in the context of a community that walks with Jesus. And it begins by addressing our physical needs. We petition Him to give us our daily bread. 
Now, that doesn't mean so much to us when we pray that way in Lincoln. I'm pretty sure that if you go home and you dig in the back of your pantry, you will find there are actually some products on the shelf that already have expired dates, maybe two or three years expired. It's just that, you know, we go to Costco, we go to Walmart, we buy groceries, we put it in, we just shove them to the back, we keep moving them backward. It was not so in their day and age. In their day and age, it was like they would get to the end of the day and, and they would reflect back that God had given them work, God had given them food, God had taken care of their family. And the last thing that the father would do as he went to bed that night is he would ask God to provide the next day's bread. Give us this day our daily bread. God, provide for us tomorrow. One of the shockers for me when we were in Kenya was to see all of the small children, three and four-year-olds, with infants tied to their back. And, and everywhere you went, you saw that. And so I asked Martin, you know, what, why, why is it that the babies are carrying the babies? And he said, because it takes all day for mom and dad to come up with enough food to fan, feed their family just for the day. It's that kind of desperate dependency that we are to have when we pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Not the luxuries, not the wants, not the excesses. Just give us the core issues that are necessary for our survival. Bread was the essential food that kept them going, and they trusted God for it. And then there are spiritual needs, the needs of confession. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. You see, the, the, the wonder is, is that Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and he, put, he put the standard really high back in chapter 5, verse 20. He says of those that would be citizens of the kingdom that, that your righteousness might exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees had set themselves as the standard, as the model for what righteousness looked like. And then if that's not a high enough bar, he ends it in chapter 5, verse 48, by saying, unless you are perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, you can't enter the kingdom. He creates this desperate, impossible situation in order that. He doesn't, have, he doesn't expect to be a perfect community. It's going to be a community that stumbles and falls and errs. People are going to commit sin, and they're going to need covering for that, confession for that, healing for that. First John chapter 1, verse 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just, forgive your sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John writing to believers, he's not talking about initial salvation, forgiveness, that I recognize I'm a sinner, I desperately need a Savior, I trust in Jesus, and when he comes in, he wipes my history clean. But he's talking about day to day, the broken fellowship, the intimacy, that I, I, I failed, I sinned in our family as we were raising our three children. You, you could always tell when somebody had broken one of the family guidelines or something. We, we used to, I don't know if they, anybody does that anymore, but we used to actually all sit around the table for one meal a day at the end. And, and uh, when you would say, it's time to eat, somebody would call down and say, well, I'm not hungry, which usually meant I've done something and I'm not comfortable being in your presence. That's what, that's what kind of forgiveness he's talking about. It's the broken joy of fellowship. It's not that he has disowned us, he has written us off, we've lost our relationship. It's that it's been affected by our sin. But at the same time, others sin against us. Sometimes it's a perceived offense, and other times it's a legitimate offense. But how am I to address that? And the answer is that I am to forgive 
them. According to Ephesians 4.32 and Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, I am to forgive them as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven me. You can hold a grudge and you can hold somebody accountable until you come to grips with the reality that God knew everything about you and while you were yet sinner, enemy of the cross, spitting in the face of his son, Christ died for you. On the basis of that, he fully forgave you. Paul says in those two texts, that's how we're to forgive one another. Psalm 103 says that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our transgressions from us. We all understand that if you start going east, you always keep going east. If you start going west, you always keep going west. It's an endless line. If you go north, you come to the North Pole and you start going south. You go south, you come to the South Pole, you start going north. As far as the east is, an endless line, that's how far he removed our transgressions from us. Forgive us our debts, the recognition of my offenses, and also the willingness to remove the debt that others have incurred against us. And then finally, there's the need for moral deliverance. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We live in a fallen world. Lord, by your grace, guide our steps. Keep us from those situations. One, where I would be tempted to sin against you, to offend you, to violate your holiness. And also, by your grace, keep me from that temptation can also mean the test of my faith. From those situations that would be, tend to cause me to doubt your goodness and your kindness. Lord, lead me in that way. And in verse 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Again, he's not talking about initial salvation, forgiveness, but he's talking about the restoration of broken fellowship. If I justify holding a grudge or an offense against someone else, I cannot expect that God will just delight in hearing from me and answer my prayers and deliver. Very quickly, let's summarize it in this way. When you pray this prayer, number one, you realign your own values and priorities. You begin to see your world from God's perspective. You see His priorities become yours. Secondly, it will deliver you from anxiety, the things you worry about, the things that get you all tied in knots. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to be good. And as you begin to pray this, you realize that your Father is in heaven. He sees the past, the present, and the future. And you learn to trust in Him. You put an end to your judgmental attitude, chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. You discover essential discernment, chapter 7, verse 6. You refresh the family relationship, chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. And ultimately, you find grace to respond to every one of life's challenges. Now, Jesus says, this, I think we're in the seventh or eighth panel of the Sermon on the Mount. He has spoken to them of their Christian character. That's the Beatitudes. You are going to be a transformed people from the inside out. The virtues that will be created in you are the virtues that are despised by the world that you're in. You are going to be distinct and different. 
He talks about Christian influence. You're going to be salt in the earth. You're going to be the light of the world. It is never pleasant to be the salt that is rubbed into something that is decaying in order to delay its decay. It's even seemed difficult to be the light in the darkness because the darkness is so intense and oftentimes you're the only flickering flame of hope and yet that's what his plan is, that we would be that light of hope. He talked about our Christian righteousness. You have heard it said But I say to you, there's this external law, but I say to you, I'm going to write the law on your heart. It's what you are from the inside out. And then he talks about Christian piety. Lest your righteousness be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. They set themselves up as the standard. But then he takes it to that 48th verse. Unless you are perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then last week he talked about our Christian ambition. What are the things that I'm really living for? Seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, and if you do, He'll add all those other things to you. And now He moves to our Christian relationships. In verses 1 to 5, He talks about brothers and sisters in the body. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You set your own standard. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let, let me get that speck out of your eye when there's this beam sticking out of your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He does not say here, and of course this is the great pushback of our generation, is you can't question me. You, you're judging me. You're setting a standard. No, there are Objective. There is objective truth in the Scriptures. There is a measurement. There is a guideline. But the problem with that is that we can see so clearly the offenses of others and we see so unclearly our own sins. His point is simply this. Before you go, you have a responsibility to your brother. The whole book of Proverbs talks about encouraging one another and reproving one another. You have a responsibility, but before you go and fix somebody else's stuff, deal with your own stuff. And the amazing thing, he says, is it, it, in reality, that speck in their eyes seems like a beam to you. But the problem is you're not seeing clearly because you've got a big offense of your own. And what happens is when you deal with your own stuff, all of a sudden, the issues of other people seem so much smaller. They seem monumental. You notice how evil and sinful other people's behavior seems if that's not an area you personally struggle in. But he says, if you'll deal with your own, when you're done dealing with your own need for grace, suddenly your brother, your sister's issue doesn't seem that significant. And then he says, here's how you deal with outsiders. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. And boy, you couldn't post that on a social media today and not get laced pretty good. Dogs and pigs, according to the law, according to the Old Testament, these are unclean animals. They are not acceptable either for the menu or for worship sacrifices. It's not a racial thing here. It's not an ethics or a, an ethnic thing here. It, it's that individual that has had the privilege of hearing the good news of the gospel, but has given it the Heisman, has stiff-armed it, has rejected it. 
He said, be cautious. You're dealing with, he calls it in Matthew 13, the pearl of great price. Be discerning. You share the good news with them, but they continually reject it. Don't keep throwing the pearl in front of the pigs. I would say if there's any area where I've struggled in my own ministry over the years, it's knowing when to exercise chapter 7, verse 6. Periodically, Pastor Mike and I will talk about the great joy we've had over the almost 28 years together of pouring our lives shepherd-wise into people and seeing God work miracles of transformation and repentance. But then we also can talk about the hour after hour that we spent with those who didn't want our help. My first associate in Gothenburg, six foot four Italian judge, used to come into my office after I would counsel somebody, and he would say, Tom, don't forget, you can only help those who want help. What he's saying here is you need discernment, practical discernment. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7 says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. He who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, he'll hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase learning. Proverbs 12.1 said, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Nobody wants to be reproved. When you understand the treasure of someone loving you enough to deal with their own stuff and get the beam out of the way so they can help you with the speck in your eye, you learn to embrace it. Chapter 13, verse 1, A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Chapter 15, verse 12, a scoffer does not like to be reproved and he will not go to the wise. Chapter 29, verse 1, he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing lest they trample the treasure underfoot and they turn and attack you. And now our Heavenly Father Chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. The relationship with the one in heaven. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, it will be opened. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. None of you gives his son a loaf, or gives him a rock that looks like a loaf when he asks for bread. Or if he asks for a fish, do you give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, and by that he is just simply saying, you who are human, in Genesis chapter 6, where it says, and God looked down from heaven and he saw that the intent of every heart was to do evil continually. You who are human, natural, even a non-Christian father knows how to give good gifts to his children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, most people like to interpret that as a blank check to get whatever they want. If you follow that through the Scripture, you'll find that there are a number of instructions given on to what to ask for and how to ask. But in this particular case, there is the promise that if you ask, that is, when, if you express your awareness of your need and dependence, that's what asking is. It is no longer trying to do it yourself. It's the, the two-year-old who having decided they would pour their own milk in their own glass, having missed it three times, finally lets mom do it for them. That's what asking is. It's coming to the point where you realize, I can't do it myself. 
To seek means to intensify your focus. When you begin to seek, everything else is put aside. You are focused on one thing only. I have one plan, plan A. God, I have no plan B. I'm seeking your provision and your grace. I think it's best illustrated in Proverbs chapter 2. If you go there and read that first paragraph, he says, if you seek it as silver, if you look for it as gold, if you dig for it like hidden treasure, if you cry out, if you, he goes through this all, if, 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 then you will discover the wisdom of God. Seeking means nothing else matters. I'm all in. And you ask yourself the question, if he says, if you ask, you will receive it. Why does sometimes God delay the yes? I think the knock is the answer. Because he wants you to determine, are you really sincere? Sometimes he just wants to stretch our faith. He wants to mold and shape patience in us. He wants us to sort out every other option and conclude there is only one plan. I am desperate. I'm asking. I'm putting everything else aside, seeking. God, I'm knocking because you are my only hope. Luke chapter 11, Jesus uses the same thing. And there he talks about a man who had a friend drop by late at night. And they were out of bread for the day. And so he went next door to his buddy's house, and he knocks on the door, and his buddy said, go away, the family's in bed. That was another kind of experience when we were in Africa. We got to go to the home of a woman with four children, and she had one room. Their whole life was lived in this one room. That's what he's talking about here. They've got the mats rolled out, the family's asleep, and the neighbor comes and he knocks on the door. But he's persistent. Why? He's not asking for bread for himself. He's asking for bread for his friend, the point of asking you will receive is, am I praying for our bread or am I praying for my needs? And there's no promise here that he will give me all my wants, but there is the promise that he will hear and he will answer. But sometimes he wants to find out, he wants you to find out, are you serious? John Calvin wrote it this way, believers do not pray with a view to informing God about things unknown to him or exciting him to do his duty, or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him, that they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises, that they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them into his bosom, in a word that they may declare that from him alone they hope and expect, both for themselves and for others, all good things. So in this context, what is it that we are asking, seeking, and knocking? And the answer is grace. I am praying that God would give me personal grace to develop my personal holiness. In desperation, I realize I cannot elevate my righteousness to the level of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then you throw this and be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect in desperation. I say, Father, I have nowhere else to turn. I will never be able to walk that walk unless you, by your grace, visit me with grace. And secondly, I am praying for grace for the spiritual struggles of others. My brother does have a speck in his eye. He does have the same temptations and trials that I'm going through. Lord, I'm praying for us together that you would visit us with your grace. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, You need divine power to subdue your raging lust. 
You need divine quickening to animate your feeble graces. You need divine wisdom to solve your perplexities. You need divine ointment for your wounds. So address yourself to your Father who is in heaven. Spread out before Him your need. Acquaint Him with the longing of your soul. Beg Him to relieve your wants, and you will not supplicate in vain. This is what genuine, real prayer really is. Now, I've got a whole list of interferences to prayer. One, sometimes the reason that heaven seems silent is that I am an unqualified uh, petitioner. I don't have time to read all these texts, but write them down in your notes. Psalm 66, 17 said, I cried to him with my mouth. High praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Proverbs 28, 9 said, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer has become an abomination to the Lord. Isaiah 1, 15, Isaiah 59, 2, Zechariah 9, or 7, 9, and then James chapter 4. You ask, and you do not receive, because you ask wrongly, so you can spend it on your own passions, you adulterous people. But in the asking and the knocking, there is this word of encouragement from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, not just praying for myself, but praying for my community, and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And then finally, our relationship with all others. Verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Notice it begins with the word so. This is the conclusion. This is the application. He's talked about the prayer that we are to initiate. He's talked about the relationship that we are to establish. He's talked about going to the Father for the needs of ourselves and others in holiness. The conclusion to that is, so, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. Arthur Pink put it this way, How many are more resolute in standing up for their own rights, yet have no regard for the rights of others, who are very strict in demanding prompt payment from their debtors, yet are exceeding slack in meeting the dues of their creditors, who hotly resent being slandered, yet care nothing for other men's names, who are very hurt when friends fail to sympathize with them in their trouble, yet are callously indifferent to the sorrows of their neighbors. It is vain to parade our orthodoxy in doctrine and prate. And I knew you didn't know what prate was, so I looked it up. It means to talk tediously at length about. The communion we enjoy with Christ, while we pay little or no attention to this important precept, God will not accept our worship if our conduct unto our fellows contradicts our Christian profession. It's not how I have been treated by others. It's how I want to be treated. If I stood where they stand, 
If I were in the circumstance they're in, how would I want them to respond to me? But greater than that, how do I want to be treated by God? Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, it's not about how I've been treated by others, whether real or perceived, but how I have been treated by God. The cries on our streets of our nation today are repeatedly for equity and justice. With the rockets and the missiles and the bombs imploding the peace in the Middle East, with the COVID crisis and all the division in fellowships and relationships and conflicts over the last year, with riots filling our streets over all forms of either real or perceived unfairness, we go back to the opening. The author said, was there ever a time when prayer for the church collectively and its members individually was more urgently needed than now? Could it be that the impotence of the church today is directly related to her forgetfulness of her God and the loss of dependence upon Him as declared by our forgottenness to pray? A.W. Pink, 1950. Things haven't changed much, have they? Loving God with all your heart and loving others as yourself will not only fulfill the law and the prophets, but it also guarantee that in every situation there is equity and justice. And that is the gleam behind the golden rule. We're four minutes over. You're dismissed.